I don't know what to say about it. The Blue Demon. People people act like this is a joke, but he's a huge figure in Mexico. He's like, this is like, um, to give a little bit of background, the two biggest luchadors of all time, El Santo and the Blue Demon, and they were rivals. Blue Demon, usually the heel. El Santo, usually the face. Um... The Blue Demon trained his successor, the Blue Demon Jr. The Blue Demon Jr. has been wrestling for like two decades now, maybe more. Um, and he's just declared his, candid his candidacy to become mayor of one of the boroughs of Mexico City. And uh, the thing so is... So how long until Blue Demon Jr. is the head of Mexico? <laughs> yeah, no, what's going to happen is uh, this is going to be a luchocracy uh, where luchadors rule all of Mexico. Um, no, but really he's running on a progressive platform with, like, the progressive party. Um, and, yeah, he, uh, he would not unmask. That is the important thing. The mayor. I mean, there's would a, a there's the a pandemic demon. right now. Why would he want to unmask? He's just <laughs> yeah, he's being careful. He's being safe. See, yeah, no, this is another reason to vote for the blue demon. Uh, I normally don't do endorsements, but I would say that you should vote for the blue demon. Uh, no one will know who he is except for the election authorities. And I think that's really what's important here. With the war going on against the cartels and with the pandemic, I think what we need is a masked warrior to uh, lead Mexico into the 21st century. And, of course, uh, just body slam the hell out of poverty and uh, lack of education, you know? Luchocracy. <sighs> yeah. Um, if El Santo was running, I'd say vote for him, too. You know? If they were running against each other, I'd say vote for both of them. Vote twice. <laughs> <sighs> so that wasn't much of a what the fuck. Um, it, it really isn't, because honestly... No I mean, one would be surprised if The Rock ran for president, let alone <laughs> the mayor of a borough. Like, I mean, it's, it's a positive what the fuck. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes sense. <laughs> Kanye ran for so, president. This is less weird. <laughs> mm. But we also have a negative what the fuck. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. So Ice decided to show how progressive they are by quoting MLK on MLK Day on their official Twitter. Yeah. It's exactly as gruesome as it sounds. God. Jesus. It feels like if, like, during, like, World War II, like, the SS, you know, if they had to somehow, like, uh, honor the memory of, like, some, like, 
German social democratic politician who was very big. Let's say like Rosa Luxemburg. Like this is how like dissonant, dissonant and horrific this is. Like it's a it's a horrific figure. It's a horrific organization. Like trying to gain prestige by honoring like a well known leftist figure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely fucked. Like, but we see this every year. We'll have like the FBI be like. We honor the legacy of a true here American hero, MLK, RIP, hashtag didn't we didn't him? do it, hashtag even if we did do it, hashtag but we didn't, <laughs> you know, like. Oh, totally. They're like, um, just because we killed him doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't mean we can't celebrate <laughs> Oh, Jesus. I mean, this makes it worse. Like, you get how this makes it worse. Like, they are dancing <laughs> on his grave after they killed him. But, and this is, like, you know, the, this kind of, like, brings to mind um, shit that people were saying during Black Lives Matter and, like, the Twin Cities and stuff, as they were like, oh, yeah, all these businesses started putting up Black Lives Matter real quick after the precinct got burned, and it was kind of, like, implicitly understood as, like, an insurance policy. Um. So, guillotine insurance? Kinda. Uh, mm? Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, you're listening to Chop Shop Economics. Oh yeah, we read this shit so you don't have to. Yeah, the gang's all here. I'm, I'm Saint Helen. I'm Miss Silver. I'm Doctor Spider. Mm-hmm. I was Death, but there has been an overflow Jokerification process since the beginning of this year, so I am now Harley Quinn. Welcome, welcome to the show. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Harley. Uh, we promise uh, we will not have your ex on anymore. Look, all I'm saying is that Mr. J needs to be guillotined. <laughs> He's part of the bourgeoisie. Uh. Ah, so, who wants to start us off? Um, yeah, uh, there's some economic news that happened recently. You know, like, uh, we've got some, some big, uh, CC videos coming out, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. he's, he's made, he's made some good promises. The president of, uh, Egypt and, you know, Egypt in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, has mm-hmm. decided to back uh, a bunch the of European African Union. Continental uh, African. Free Trade Area, the yeah. AFCFTA. AFC so FTA. basically, like this is pretty simple. Like the first, like the first phase is to get everybody on every country in Africa to sign on, which is mostly done. Like um, there's a lot of like there's a lot of countries that have ratified this. But most other countries besides maybe, oh yeah, pretty much like every country uh, in Africa, except for Eritrea, has 
uh, signed this like free trade ag area agreement. And the second phase is to get them to ratify and get enough of the large economies, Egypt, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Senegal, and Ghana, to ratify it, to make it worthwhile. And what's notable is this was accomplished on January 1st of this year. So all the countries that have ratified this have no tariffs with each other whatsoever and have to consider companies from each other countries as domestic which for African companies means they can get financing from, say, First Rand in South Africa or Startup Incubator in Cairo. And for larger companies means they can essentially exist continent-wide. The third phase is free movement or clearly defined semi-restricted movement between the ratifying parties, which they're working on as we speak. The plan is that the bare minimum will be a visa on arrival system where you pay a set amount and come in, no further questions asked, while they encourage countries to just open up borders. A few open border agreements have already happened, like between Egypt and Sudan, or between the East African, East African Federation countries, once the East African Federation, like as a, as a country becomes reality, or between ECOWAS, which is this big like agreement within West Africa, or between Ghana and Togo. Um, the tricky thing here is that, you know, they're basically following a very similar path to the European Union, and there's not really a lot of obstacles to prevent uh, 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 Egypt and South Africa uh, basically becoming the German, the Germany and the France of this, like, of this new system. Well, um, like, it, it's more that uh, Nigeria and Egypt are the Germany and France, and South Africa is the UK. Because South really, Africa yeah. is one of the ones that's like, oh, I'm only signing the bare minimum stuff. You know? Yeah. Like, and they don't want to sign on to Africa and Schengen and all that. And, yeah. and Egypt is in a particularly like uniquely advantageous position with this right now, because as we've covered in some previous episodes, they have been successfully doing some really huge bond sales where they're taking in uh, euros and yuans while like getting European and Chinese investors to buy bonds that have to pay out in Egyptian pounds. So they're effectively creating both e like Egyptian money as a something of a reserve currency and making it accessible in other countries while also giving themselves more like really solidly valuable money in the form of euros and yuans to prop up the value of the pound. So they're basically coining fucking money like nobody's business and they're coining money that other people will take at That's actually the thing value I find instead of how to deal with like, you know, um, facing like massive depreciation of the value of their currency and like it allows for africa who are being funded like african businesses and such funded by egyptian money to really attract like higher value exports than they would like, otherwise. what i find incredibly like, fascinating about all of this is that like even though i mean there are some broad similarities between like this like, agreement that's forming that's basically consolidating the entire African continent as one political and economic entity. 
Um, like, and, you know, comparing that to the European Union is, yeah, there are broad similarities, but we also keep in mind that, like, Egypt and Nigeria and South Africa, to a lesser extent, are the economic engines of, well, economic engines, it's a positive way to describe it, you can also say social imperialism in the negative way to describe it, um, cough, cough, uh, but anyhow, <laughs> like, what I'm basically saying here is that the Egypt has a willingness to do social democratic, like, banking financial policy that you don't necessarily see in the European Union. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're doing, like, uh, a bunch of, like, pre-EU, uh, like, Miracle on the Rhine and, like, Opus Dei-type uh, shenanigans, you know? Like, <laughs> and... They're in, but they're not in a uh, in a competitive trade environment like uh, pre-EU Europe. They're in a very large, very large free trade area, <laughs> and like it. And so they've got this. Uh, they've got a very good situation. They've created a very good situation for. Uh, Investing in countries like Chad and uh, the East African countries and things like that. Uh, and this uh, will and be I like the first time that you have significant inter-regional trade in Africa since like the slave trade was a thing in West yeah, Africa. Yeah, exactly. This is um, like... If you look at the... This is yeah. pretty huge. Like Africa is going to be able to kickstart itself mm -hmm. and to be not... Being at the mer yeah. economically at the mercy of the rest of the planet for the first time in like three hundred years, and they're doing it in a situation where the their infrastructure being relatively under development, underdeveloped, and focused on resource extraction is going to actually kind of be a huge benefit because now all the new stuff coming out with renewables and all that other like. Mm -hmm. And like cellular networks and everything else, like those are already taking off because they don't have centuries of accumulated like industrial period on infrastructure to have to work through. Yeah, it's yeah. actually really interesting you, that you bring you this up. At, and that's going to lower like, cost of production across the board. That's just going like to make everything cheaper in a significant like, way. Like the fourth phase of. Uh, of this project that they're working on is to create a unified transportation network. And that's the real pickle in all of this. Like, there's no Pan-African highway that doesn't go through Egypt. And, like, there is... Okay, in a lot of Southern Africa, there are there is British rail that was built there during the colonial period. But we have to realize how fucking shitty this rail system was. And it was never actually completed. It's just these, like, it's just this shitty rail system that is just, like, not linked together, but it's different sec uh, segments that are, like, spread all apart. Like, just imagine, like, you know, what we see in the PRC and other parts of the world, like, a high-speed, like, rail, like, train system, like, uniting the entire continent of Africa. Like, infrastructure is the fabric and web of power, and, like, this is something that is going to seriously make Africa as a continent, as, like, as like a political system, as like an as an economy, have so much influence on the world stage. 
Yeah, especially because uh, previous to this, and probably currently, mo the vast majority of trade uh, African nations had was with uh, countries like Europe, uh, the U.S., and China, and Japan. Um, it was not between neighbors. Uh, it was intercontinental, and... Uh, it was reminiscent of colonial arrangements. But by increasing trade between each other, they can uh, keep their wealth from leaving the continent and just going to Egypt instead of hopping over into Europe. <laughs> and it will be a much more reciprocal arrangement of course. Um, but yeah. So how's Parlor going? <sighs> Parlor. Um, so they got kicked off of um, basically Google and um, they got kicked off of Google Play Store and they got kicked off of the Apple App Store. Um so they lost their mobile app uh, hosting. Um, there are not a lot of companies really willing to work with them at this point. Um, and like, you know, that's, it's a little finding just how much um, leverage they have. Um, because we've finally seen it like really deployed for the first time. <laughs> um, like, the power of Alphabet and Google's, you know, duopoly over mobile. Because basically, if you have an integration with them, they can, you know, lean on you to basically do not work with Parler. Um, and I'm not saying that, like, Parler is a, is a good thing. It's, it's not. It's a... <laughs> It's, you know, the social media service for, like, you know, QAnon and, you know, far-right wackos, um, people like that. Um, AWS kicked them off, too. Um, and once you're kicked off the troika of cloud service hosting, it's very difficult to build a good service um, because... For obvious reasons, Microsoft is not going to touch them, so Azure is out. Google bans them, so Google Cloud Platform is out. Um, so, in theory, they can't come back to life, except they kind of did. They found a new uh, DDoS mitigation service, um, new DNS hosting. They are now hosted by Epic. Um which is, they're a company that's very popular among the far right because they'll post just about anything. Um, they were even giving, um, uh, I believe they were even giving um, DNS and hosting services to 8chan. Um, they later gave up um, on hosting them, but they retained the DNS. Um, 
And yeah, basically, Parker is not dead. It just lies dreaming right now. Um, but, you know, the Mercer family project's little pet project is not, it's never going to have the reach of, like, Twitter. Because there's no, there's no real business model for a, a service that's just, you know, the Mercer family, um, correct party fought line. (laughs) Um, yeah, don't don't believe the whole bullshit about how, you know, Parlor is a free speech network. They're not. They're not. They are very aggressive about their um, political line, um, which is basically what the Mercer family thinks. <sighs> yeah. Jesus does a lot. It, well, it's fucked. <laughs> yeah, and like the the implications of this kind of thing are like like the thing is that it had it's kind of a win for the far right, um, mm-hmm. much like how the, the aborted coup was a win-win for them. Because uh, mm-hmm. what what happens is like Democrats have situated themselves in like liberals have situated themselves on the side of like monopoly capital, you know. Whereas the right yeah. gets to position themselves as uh, against these huge ultra powerful companies. Um, I mean, and, yeah. I think and that like even if Parler, you know, doesn't survive, there's there is not a lot stopping the Mercer family from like just backing a totally not Parler project. This time, without you know, uh, harvesting social security numbers. Uh, because one of the things that really impacted Parler was that they got 70 terabytes of their stuff dumped before their AWS instance went down. <laughs> Which has been like an amazing bonanza for open source intelligence, by the way. So, you know, there, there's folks that are crunching that like nobody's business and are... They're like a bunch of kids in a fucking candy store, and the candy store is named Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. <laughs> like, academics are going to be chewing on this information for years and years. So I think there are two major uh, implications we can draw out of this with what has happened uh, with, like, Parler and the alignment of, of how they've positioned themselves as, uh, how do you put it, um, as St. Helen said, like, as opposing monopoly capitalism, as, you know, David opposing Goliath, and in actuality, they're not doing this. It's an alliance of, like, the plantation clique and the petty bourgeoisie opposing uh, another section of the bourgeoisie. Like, it's not, it's not class struggle of the proletariat, it's class struggle of the fools. And unfortunately, yeah. that that is a narrative that is popular amongst the far right. And the second, right. yeah. And the second implication is, uh, I think we want to narrow in onto the Russian hosting of Parler, not necessarily not out of some sort of a Russia Gate uh, nonsense, but more in the sense of like what this speaks to, like the growing fragmentation of 
of the internet, of like this like digital Pax Americana that has defined the Amer has defined the internet for several decades. Because mm-hmm. one thing that I think a lot of countries are starting to notice is that when you have American tech companies that have this strong social control over what is and what isn't on the internet and what is given a platform, you know, they're starting to think about like, okay, if we wanna be able to like maintain our own position, we have to um, we have to build up our own like digital infrastructure, our own digital institutions. And I mean, this is like a small step in like hosting parlor, but like, I mean, we've seen it with like, you know, how it is in the PRC with like how they basically have their own internet system. And they're starting to do that in Russia. Like, I mean, I don't, I would not be surprised if we start to see similar stuff in the European Union, um, in this, uh, emerging Af- it, and this emerging African power that, you know, we just discussed before, um, in India and other parts of the world, like, the internet as we know it, I think, is starting to fragment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I would probably add to that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, you know, everyone's gonna turn in, every internet segment's gonna turn into, like, you know, the Great Firewall of China. Um, I think... I think that's ridiculous, um, and I think that part of what's what's driving some of these moves is they like the whole idea of there not being a censored internet, but they don't want the U.S. leading that. Um, obviously, you know, China and Russia disagree, but like. India is side-eyeing a lot of this stuff because if they can, you know, effectively blacklist an American company, what's to stop them from blacklisting their domestic companies? Um, and so... <laughs> yeah, this this poses a uh, like strategic question for a lot of uh, oh yeah, companies totally. and countries outside of America. They they uh, they realize and oh, honestly, wait, like, everything I'm... is reliant on just a couple American companies who are subject to political pressure. Yeah, and it's like the other. I mean, how at this point, I would say that the European Union is probably going to be the center of gravity for um, the part of the internet as we know it, um, you know, over the next decade or so, simply because, like, they're the ones who are actually moving on, like, the data protection questions and things like that. They've already been looking at both of them for, you know, abuse of monopoly power, um, I mean, it's not a good time to be an American hegemon right now. Um, because it's like, it only works if you're like, you know, if you can present yourself as like truly neutral in this process. And the second that illusion goes out the window, so does, you know, American power. Oh, oh my God. So. Plague that kind of brings us to plague shit, really. Speaking of American power. 
Yeah, um, we're having no, no, no. some really cool things happen in America that make uh, the hosts of this show feel uh, very safe. Um, and we're having we're seeing stuff like uh, like the huge amount of mass death causing like crematorium air pollution limits to be lifted, so they they can just be constantly burning bodies twenty four seven. Because there's too many dead bodies. And I think that, like, the mayor or, like, some high-up public official in L.A. was like, yeah, we're pretty sure that 1 in 10 residents are infected with COVID. And they suspect that, and, like, health officials now suspect there's a new strain emerging. Yeah, and in, if in we Los Angeles. go down <laughs> to San Diego, uh, uh, Somebody was saying that funeral homes are so backed up in San Diego that they're not even going to be able to bury their cousin until February. Meanwhile, like you have people down here who have who are going to like these like big concerts. Like there's like there's this like certain segment, and I've seen this in a lot of like the party scene, um, you know, throughout like the West Coast. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is in other you know communities too in the United States. Um, but uh, one of the things that I've, no one of the things I've noticed is that there's a certain segment within the party community where it's just like people like they've lost track of like, you know, caring for each other and they know they're just in it for the spectacle. And like, we've got to this point where it's just like, whether you look at like LA or San Diego and honestly, probably a lot of other parts of the United States right now, like where bodies are being burnt at a record rate where funeral homes are, like, are piled up. And, you know, one thing that Doc was saying before is that we have new strains of COVID in California, in Ohio. And from, like, what we've seen, like, these strains are more infectious. And, uh, and there's a possibility, there's a study that came out recently that, um, like, take this with a grain of salt. Because there's obviously more research that needs to be done. But there's a study that came out recently that the vaccines are a little bit less effective for these new strains. Not, not ineffective, but they're not as sharp as they could be. And I think this really comes down to the problem is that, you know, with vaccine distribution within the United States, like, because how insufficient and incomplete, because of this complete mess of infrastructure that we have, you know, a lot of people are getting, like, their first injection, but they're not getting the second injection. And that, it, that presents a nightmare scenario of, like, a strain of a strain emerging that could be immune to the vaccine altogether. Yeah, and, I mean, like, that's largely because there's just huge vaccine shortages in America right now. Basically, everyone has, all, like, either is running out in the next couple weeks or they've already run out. Um... Even so, though there's reports of, like, massive quantities of stocks rotting on the shelves because they were not properly allocated. Yeah, yeah. there's things like Oregon is, like, out of vaccine, but then, like, there'll be, like, a federal warehouse <laughs> with just, like, spoiling vaccine. It's, it's nuts. Um, and then we also have to take into account long COVID. Like thirty percent of COVID patients who were like who were hospitalized and recovered 
end up in the back in the hospital, like, you know, within within five months, thirty percent up to twelve percent die of complications. Like the thing that a lot of the medical industry, the, a lot of the medical system is starting to realize is that like long COVID, like as this chronic illness is this big problem. Like what they found is that many people who have long COVID suffer from long lasting effects like heart problems, diabetes, chronic liver problems, kidney conditions. Uh, like, and like, you know, we are even seeing like lung, lung damage too. I mean, from like images I've seen of like, of lungs after recovery, you're like, you're looking at like literal styrofoam. Yeah. And so we're, we're not doing good on, on that front. Um, and like all of these, that this does lead to like a lot of pressures on labor though. Like, and that's, and that's why we've been seeing such like this huge strike wave that we've talked about a lot. And what we're seeing now is that, um, with the Trump administration, um, they haven't been handling this well, like, and their allies have not been handling this well. Uh, there was a data analyst in Florida who was accused, who like accused state officials of covering up the extent of the pandemic, and the and state officials issued a warrant for her arrest. Uh, as somebody put it on Twitter, authoritarian U.S. regime arrests whistleblower who accused state officials of covering up extent of the pandemic. And yeah, that's not um, helped by the she, fact that, she like... She turned herself the Trump in, by the way. Oh, yeah, she did. And that's not helped by the fact that, like, the Trump administration literally, with PPP loans, literally bailed out, like, about five anti-vaccine groups who received more than $850,000 in loans. Anti-vaxxer groups. Yep. Yeah, this is where we're at. At least it's, yeah. you know... Could be worse. At least we're not damp turf island. Yeah, but, um... The, uh... Amazon is getting, uh, pressure from labor in Bessemer, Alabama, they are voting on a union at a 6,000-worker warehouse, one of the main warehouses in the U.S., um, and they're being organized by the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, which is a fairly small union, only like 6,000 people. This will boost their numbers by like 10%, and uh, the voting is going to be by mail because of coronavirus. And it's going from February 8th to March 29th. It's a long, long vote. And what's interesting is that isn't quite just that it is an Amazon unionization, uh, but it's that it's a huge warehouse. 6,000 employees are being industrially unionized. And... Like, that's, that's going to be one of the largest, like, union votes in American history, you know? 
And it's uh, happening in a state oh, yeah. that's notoriously anti-union. Yeah. Yeah. And during an administration that is notoriously anti-union. Um, luckily, there'll be a transition to the uh, much more pro-labor Biden administration. Um, that's one of the few things, good things you can say about the Biden administration is that they've consistently signaled to be uh, more pro-labor than any president since fucking LBJ, I would say. Which isn't saying much, but <laughs> but more than Obama and Clinton, so uh, who were pretty much openly anti-labor. Yeah, I want your I want your votes. I want your money, but I don't care about your opinion. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. they they never made any solid promises to labor and. Uh, they never signaled as hard or competed as hard for uh, union votes um, and endorsements. Uh, but it's that's one of the good things that's happening right now. You know, <laughs> it's it's not like saving the world or anything, but. Uh, it's 6,000 people, and it's probably going to go union. We've got some fun news coming out from uh, all those shitty sources that we read so you don't have to. About investors and their spending patterns. And how's that, how's that looking, Spider? Oh, so that is just... This is the kind of shit that is you hate to see if you're actually looking at the macro level. The short version is we've got CNBC of all people saying it looks like rich investors are spending like we're in the middle of a bubble. Well, if then what that means is they're throwing money after like hot investment properties, things that look like they'll turn a buck quickly, tech companies, you know, shit that like healthcare, shit that's rebounded in spite of COVID, and it's basically the thing that's holding up our incredibly inflated stock market, not just in the US, but in like Europe, the European Union and a lot of other places um, where investor confidence is depending so much on, well, the Americans are still somehow defying gravity, so fuck it, let's do this shit. Um, but you know, if people are spending like their money's gonna vanish tomorrow, that's probably because it will. <laughs> yeah. It's because that's a likely scenario, yeah. Like, you know how, like, when there's, just like, call an it what it is. If people are spending like we're in the middle of a bubble, it's probably because we are. Like, you know how, like, in movies and TV shows, when there's, like, a, an apocalypse about to happen, and there's, like, you know, you see these big raucous parties, like, everyone's, like, celebrate, is trying to, like, have as much, like, decadent fun before the end of the world... You know, I don't know. I feel like there's a parallel here. Like, Miss Silver, do you, do you feel like there's a parallel here? Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it's like, as we discussed in, like, you know, one of our, our weekly last year, um, shit, I mean, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing indicators that look a, 
an awful lot like 2007. Like, you know, in terms of like default rates and such. And so this is just kind of confirming that thesis for me, which is, you know, a lot of the people with an appetite for risk are like, they're staying in because they, they think they can ride the bull. Um, until it dies. It, and it's worth pointing out that during the original 1929 stock crash, there was a period of about three or four months where markets recovered about 75% of what was lost on Black Tuesday. Um, yeah. It, and it actually genuinely sustained for a bit. And you can look at the newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and like the New York Daily News and just the, uh, you know, umpteen million sources that you can find from them because, you know, it wasn't one newspaper for per city. Um, but you can look at all of them and they're all like, oh yeah, we're good. Don't worry. We got through that little, like, unprecedented hiccup just fine. Yeah. It's... Oh, God. And we've been saying this all year. You know, throughout 2020, we're like, yeah, this is a fucking bubble. Yeah, and I mean, like, what, what happens is that eventually the media catches up to our analyses, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's been doing all 2020. Um,. Mm. It, although my my predictions tend to be a little less good uh, compared to Doc's over here, um, especially like my predictions regarding fossil fuels. Uh, I had no idea like shit like like French Central Bank. Like if you asked me a year ago if the French Central Bank is gonna divest from fossil fuels. Or, like, I would just, I would be like, but that's, that's blue chip, you know, <laughs> like. Bluest of blue yeah. chip. And, and, I mean, it's just like, yeah, if it, uh, like, we're not just seeing, like, you know, commercial banks running away from this stuff. Now we're seeing, like, sovereigns running away from this stuff. Because they don't want to touch it anymore. Um, and it's not just like ideological reasons. It's like this investment kind of smells bad reasons. <laughs> yeah. But they can but see like, that it's rotting. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's like not even like it smells bad. It's that they're like, hey, uh, according to Exxon's own numbers, it might not exist in five years. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah. That's what you mean money. by it's smelling bad. <laughs> <laughs> So it'll like, be like, like if petro capital and this like economic that petro capital you know collapsing and you know possibly not existing in five years. This bubble that you know is expanding. It seems like it's about to pop. What happens when you throw just a little bit of political stability, instability into that? You know, let's say there's a lot of in political instability going on right now. Just what happens, hypothetically speaking? It it could get well. I'll just drop this thing here from Ben Bernanke. 
where he pretty much says that the Fed's been printing money. I'm not making this up. This was the chairman of the Fed. This was during the 2008 financial crisis, and this has been policy ever since. So I'll just, you know, let him talk for a minute. <laughs> is that tax money that the Fed is spending? It's not tax money. The banks have um, accounts with the Fed much the same way that you have an account in a commercial bank. So to lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. You've been printing money. Well, effectively, and we need to do that because our economy is very weak and inflation is very low. When the economy begins to recover, that'll be the time that we need to unwind those programs. So, you know, who knows what happens when the bluest of the blue chips and global capitalism since the fucking 50s starts eating shit and dying when the only thing that's actually holding up the value of our financial system is, like, the Fed farting out money. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I really wish we could have gone into it a bit earlier, but... Go on the BLS site and look up the EPR ratio, the employment population ratio. We talk about it a lot, but seeing it in graph form is sobering. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, this is, like, really, it's when the carbon bubble properly starts to be felt, because it's already going, then, and we, and, like, even the Biden administration's like, yeah, we're revoking the Keystone XL permit here. Because even they can see that this sector is dead and rotting in the sun. Fossil yeah. fuels are fucked of their own accord. Yeah, it's like... It's like how Trump was like, well, we're gonna bring back coal, and it's like, no, they're not. I know they're not. And what I find really interesting collapsed. about like the Keystone XL pipeline being canceled is like this was supposed to bring a lot of oil, like shale oil, down from Canada. Canada's economy relies on two things: real estate and oil. Real estate has been a bubble. They've been like trying to like keep up for years and years and years. Uh, people keep saying it's going to pop. It hasn't popped for a while. Who knows when it's going to happen? Oil is dying right now. That's one of like the cores of the Canadian economy. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Canada is uh, is like a but, dead country walking right now. <laughs> it, this is all just so like yeah, the fu all the rubber bands are fucking snapping just about now. So you thought twenty twenty was bad? Like, well, we could just go right to the first example that's already unleashing itself on the world. Of what we're talking about. As we go to Damp Turf Island for a minute and talk about trade. Oh boy. Oh boy. I so. love I love how like uh like I swear to god they're, they're the UK is like like 
Boris Johnson is like Hillary Clinton and the UK is like Jeffrey Epstein. It's just like choking it out in the prison cell, you know? Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. Aren't they like seeing fucking food shortages? Like yeah, legitimate no, like they ran out of jam and gravy. Like that that's that's getting pretty close to closing down the pubs in they, terms of things that will destabilize the UK. They were literally Those are the confiscating two the sandwiches that, of truckers bringing in shipments of food. The little the sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh Yeah, you need to or oh, you got a customs license for that the sandwich. You know, like the <laughs> I just... It's insane, and there's shit like there's people posting on eBay about how they're revoking contracts for shipping, even from Belfast to the rest of the UK because they're like, yeah, sorry, mate, um, I have to Belfast fill out a pile of forms because it's got the open border with Ireland, so it has to, the, the border has to be somewhere, and it ends up between Norland <laughs> and fucking. Britain, like and it's so put, great, and they can't put a hard border between Ireland and North Ireland because if they do that, that breaks the Good Friday Agreement and say hello to a big sectarian conflict in Ireland. <sighs> but, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Brexit math says twenty six plus six equals one. Oh. Mm-hmm. So right now and... there's more. Of, uh, <laughs> A free flow of goods and services and people between Northern Ireland and actual Ireland and Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. Uh, like, there's, like, we're seeing sh- shit just go absolutely nuts in the UK. Yeah. And, like, we talked, ab- again, we talked about this um, a good bit on. Our twenty, our final twenty twenty episode, um, you know, just how bad things were getting, you know, before the agreement was signed. Like, you know, Dover is not set up for these sorts of long queues. Um, all sorts of shit. It was, you know, people rejecting, like. Freight contracts being rejected routinely as, like, a matter of course. Like, what the fuck can you do with that? And the thing I find is extremely hilarious about all of this is, like, you have these fla- these flows of trade that are, you know, just completely, like, clogging up, and the, the UK is about to starve. I don't find that hilarious. But, like, you have the fucking, you know, head clown of the Tory party Boris Johnson, who literally just, like, pushed the Tory party to narrowly decide that it's okay to trade with countries that are doing genocide. Literally, the bare minimum, the Tories somehow go under it. Yeah. Yeah. So, our last word... Um, 
Jesus. It's like, what the fuck? Um, um, my last word is uh, kill all of the police. <laughs> um, <laughs> parody, parody, rejected, Minecraft, parody. <laughs> This My is, proposal uh, here is that we form a Luchador a Liberation Front. <laughs> we form a Luchador Liberation Front in the United States in order to overthrow the capitalist system here. If it can be done in Mexico City, why not here? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and, uh, we, what we can't possibly is be worse. Borders, so we can import Mexican labor. And by Mexican labor, I mean an army of luchadors. And these luchadors will be the revolutionary vanguard. So, uh... The, the insurrection begins with the blue demon. And, uh... You can, you can take that to heart. That is an official uh, Chop Shop Economics prediction. I'm saying this now, the Blue Demon is the American Lenin of the 21st century. There's really... Unquestionably. Not much else to say, other than uh, if you're in Amazon and you're in Alabama, fucking vote for unionization. Just do it. Just do it. Fucking do it. <laughs> Hell yeah! Um, uh, you know, start forcing your like you know state governments to do shit like get rid of balanced budget amendments and fucking pay people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Suspend rent, shit like that. You know, suspend mortgages. Yeah, little things and that Italy did successfully. Keep and stopping like evictions Fed, by any means necessary, you know? Like, the Fed can basically print money, so for they, if they're doing it for the bourgeois class, why can't we do that for us? Exactly. Like, think yeah. about that. Why can't we do that for us? They have a fucking magic money tree. Yeah. They're, they it's, have... It's right fucking there. Money print is ready to go. <laughs> money print is ready to go. Just Biden mint that fucking coin... And give it to Bernie Sanders. Exactly. Who coincidentally is in charge of the budget committee and Senate now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which won't be enough, but, you know, that's going to be fun. Yeah. And, like, we're recording this, like, right before the inauguration. Hopefully you hear this before the inauguration. Um... We are about to exit this particular political singularity, and thank fuck, I am so sick of it. Like, um, we still don't know what's going to happen. We don't have yeah. the slightest clue. Miss um, Silver, I feel like you're trying to jinx us here. Just throwing that out there. I mean, it's like I don't, I don't. No, you you don't understand. I don't care what happens. It's over. What is over? Like, you know, this whole, you know, waiting to see if, like, you know, there will be a transfer of power and 
all this stuff, you know, waiting for, like, the other shoe to drop, like, until this happens, it's like, I don't know, my crystal ball ain't working. I got nothing. Um, and I'm, I'm just eager for that to, like, to restart so that, like, I can start thinking about this stuff, because, like, I don't know what happens until I know how tomorrow goes. You know, tomorrow being, like, the inauguration. Uh, I think that it's it's going to go pretty swimmingly. I don't think anyone's going to successfully do anything. Um, I do think that we are going to enter a point at which people will start to do things successfully against uh, the government, but it's not... Uh, yeah, and, like, I guess what I'm saying maybe. is that, like... You know, I can finally, like, close out the book on, like, our predictions. For better or for worse. I don't... I don't know what the future will bring. And if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I don't know, um, several years from now, you're, you know, you're on the battlefield, uh, you're hunting a fascist militia, uh, good luck hunting out there. Uh, I believe in you. Uh, Trust... I, you know, I know you can kill those fuckers. Yeah. Yep. So, from all of us at Chop Shop Economics, good luck out there. Good luck. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Party on. Holiday forever.